Would you turn in your New Testament to the book of Matthew, chapter 14, and uh, Mark, chapter 6, verse 14. This is the fourth in the series of little sermonettes, little mini-series on the life of John the Baptizer. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to refer to these other verses, several of them, so please have your Bible handy. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they regarded him as a prophet. One of my goals that I set when I began preaching years ago was to be realistic. I think I'm more of a realist than I am an idealist. Now I get a lot of kidding about speaking ministerially, but I, I don't think that I do speak ministerially. I think I speak more realistically than ministerially. Oh, occasionally when the need arises, you know, and I might add a number or two to the total, but I want to be realistic. I, I think the Bible, although the Bible presents the ideal, the standard, the norm, it is very realistic. It's a realistic book, and it portrays its characters in realistic terms, in realistic portraits. I mean, you get them warts and all. And what you find in the Scripture are people, this, you know, just human beings, folks, just as they are. And you're going to see Moses and his hot temper. And there's Jacob the chiseler. Doesn't paint him any different. And the lust that burned Samson and David's adultery and Thomas doubting and Peter's hypocrisy and John the baptizer almost overwhelmed with depression and disillusionment. Here's a man totally disillusioned with the Lord. For it is not a downhill slide when you first, when you come to know the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's not, it's not a downhill slide from the first time you meet Christ and everything after that's easy, no problems, none whatsoever. Don't you wish somebody had told you that the first day you came into the family of God that that you're going to have times when you stump your toe and you are going to stumble as this song was about tonight and you are going to fail. I shared the gospel today, this week, with a little boy. His father was in the room with me and I went through the whole plan of salvation and I you know, told him how a person becomes a Christian. And then I left that decision to them later on. Before they left, that father took that little boy, had his arm around him. He said, now, son, I want to tell you what pastors just told you is true, but I want you to know that you won't, 
it, it, it's not that you'll never sin again. You're going to sin. Mother and I sinned. Just told him how it was. I, realistically, you're going to stumble and you're going to fail. You're going to fall. And the little village, a villager stopped the monk in the little village store. He had come down from the monastery high atop the mountain to get some some supplies, and she was totally enamored with this holy man. So she stopped him in the aisle of the little village store and said, What do you holy men do up there on that high mountain so close to God? And he smiled knowingly of her adoration and said, We fall and we get up, and we fall and we get up, and we fall and we get up. What he was saying is this, even on that high holy mountain, so close to God, you're going to fall and you're going to have to get up and you're going to fall and you're going to have to get up. It's not, life with Christ is not problem free. And what I want to do tonight is I want to center on mistreatment, a part of that problem, those problems that come in life. Mistreatment. Uh, it will occur as the Scripture predicts. Now with your New Testament in hand, I want you to turn to the 16th chapter of John. We're going to make a little journey through the New Testament here quickly. The 16th chapter of John, the very last verse is 33. and This is Jesus speaking to His disciples. It must be Him speaking. My, my uh, print is in red. And Jesus said to His disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. The word means pressure. It's the picture of the pressing of the grape until the juice is pressed out. In Me you have peace. In the world you have pressure and stress. So great is the pressure sometimes you feel like it will crush you. As old black preacher said, when the Lord says we have tribulation, we're going to tribulate. That's, that's, that's the way it is. Now if you go back to the first verse of chapter 16, that same chapter, this is why it says, These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. He's saying it's going to get so bad that people think they do God a favor when they tribulate you. Now, turn to the second book of Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. Now this makes such a direct turn. I was at the baseball game the other day and this guy was sitting beside me. He was giving the batters a fit. I mean, he was working them over. He hired this batter. He said, put your, put your, signal, put your left turn signal on. You fix the strikeout and take a left turn straight to the dugout. This, put your left turn signal on because this thing makes a complete reversal of thought. Look at this. And, in e and indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, you would think that the next statement is this, all of you who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, He's going to bless and protect 
He's going to put a fence around you so that you'll never have any trouble. All of you who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. As a matter of fact, the desire to live a godly life triggers persecution. The desire to live godly lives causes it so that in the curriculum of the Christian life is tribulation, persecution. One more verse, 1 Peter. Go right over to James, keep going to the right, chapter 3, chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right, notice not if you do what is right and suffer, it's when. Did you see that? Underline that. But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Verse 14 of chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Now notice that the, 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 the human response to trouble, to, to mistreatment, is intimidation and anxiety. He said, now when you suffer abuse or, or, or mistreatment, the natural response to that would be intimidation. Don't be intimidated by it. And the natural response to that would be anxiety. Don't have anxiety. Now let me give you a definition of mistreatment as I'm trying to fit this thing and get ready for the takeoff here. Mistreatment is abuse. It's to be given unfair, unjust treatment. It's to be the recipient of unfair actions or words. It's not deserved. Mistreatment did occur in the life of John the Baptist now. You know that. He was the recipient of unjust, unfair treatment. He desired to serve the Lord and it got him persecution. I'm glad that the Lord let us know this about John the Baptist. I'm glad he just told it like it is, presented it in a realistic language, because when you and I then came in life to experience mistreatment, we'd be totally surprised we shouldn't be. I mean, it's like when the devil came to, to, to the Lord and said, now this Job you, you, you love and you have such respect for, it, you, you, it's because you put a hedge about him. You take down that hedge and you let him experience real life, and he'll curse you to your face, you see. Well, I mean, this is real life, is to endure the abuse and the mistreatment and the unfair actions of words or others. Now, let me give you right quickly, from the 11th chapter of Matthew, if you'll turn to that, just a quick picture of, of John the Baptist before we get into this thing. 11th chapter of Matthew. We're going to start in verse 7. The Lord's appraisal of him. Now, what if you had to carry around in your wallet the Lord's appraisal of you? I mean, He appraises you just like you really are. You had to carry that around your wallet. Somebody said, do you have a, 
an appraisal of the Lord? Yeah, I got one here. And whip it out of your wallet. What would it be like? Listen to the Lord's appraisal of Him. What did you go out to in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? And what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. This is no vacillating man who is just moved back and forth by the, by the pressure. This is no man dressed in soft raiment who has it easy. But why did you go out to see a prophet, yes I say to you, and one who is more than the prophet? This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a statement. That's God's appraisal. That's the Lord's appraisal of him. Of all women, men born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Now, let's go back to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6. And we're going to find out why this person, what triggered this person's mistreatment. If you've got your outline handy, what triggered his mistreatment? Beginning verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, that is, what is this it? He heard of this, uh, these marvelous works of Jesus being performed. I thought it unusual that when he when they heard of Jesus' miraculous works, he thought of John the Baptist. I wish it could be said of us that when um, something happens in our life, people could, we're so closely, our life and what we do is so closely related to what he would do, it's hard to tell the difference. I wish it could be said of us that that what it happens, what we do, is, is the Lord at work. I wish that could be said of me. Look at verse 14. And King Herod heard it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, when they heard what Jesus was doing, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Now, you remember, now what we've got here is a flashback. Um, Kierkegaard says we look back on life and we live toward it. What we have is a flashback. You're not getting uh, the event as it's happening. We're getting a flashback onto something that's already happened. So John the Baptist is dead by now, and, and all this stuff that Jesus is doing, this, these miracles that he's performing, they think John the Baptist is risen from the dead. Look at it. But others were saying he is Elijah, and others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of him, he kept saying, John, whom I have beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Two things that triggered mistreatment. Number one was that he became popular with the people. This... These people were tired of this shallow religion. And they were attracted to this man who had depth in his message. 
And they were attracted to this strange, simplistic lifestyle that this man lived. And the multitudes were coming out from the cities to follow him. He was popular. They recognized him as a prophet. And it triggered their mistreatment because he declared the truth too openly. Let me tell you a little bit about this man, Herod, here. This is Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas had a half-brother by the name of Herod Philip, and he was a wealthy merchant, lived in Rome. He was married to a woman named Herodias. Herodias was the daughter of Herod Antipas's other half-brother by, by the name of Aristobulus. Now, this is what happened. Old Herod Antipas went to Rome to visit his half-brother Philip and seduced Philip's wife, Herodias, and convinced her to go back and live with him as his wife. And so he was married to Herodias, who was the daughter of his half-brother, made her, made her his niece. <laughs> and, and she was married to his half-brother, Philip, made her his sister-in-law. I guess she was her own grandmother, I can't, you know. <laughs> but, but she was... his brother's wife, and the other sin was the sin to the Jew of incest. He lived with his own niece. And so John the baptizer went nose to nose with Herod Antipas and said, It is not lawful for you to have her. Rare indeed are people who will stand up for right. Aren't you grateful for the Elijahs of the world who stood against Ahab and Jezebel and the Martin Luthers of the world who stood against the popes? And, and I'm grateful for people, for young people and adults who regardless of what it cost them with regard to votes and position, who stand against the wrong. And when I read of John the baptizer, I think of John Knox who who challenged Mary, Queen of Scots, and she said, Is it right for the authorities of rulers to be resisted? And he opened the Bible and said, Madam, when princes exceed the bounds of this word, it is not only right that they be resisted, but they, they be deposed. So she chunked him in prison and said later, I fear John Knox more than I fear the armies of Scotland. And so John the baptizer just went up against Herod Antipas, the ruler of the world, and said, it just isn't right. So he threw him in prison. It's unfair. And in the 11th chapter of Matthew, if you go back and read that again, the first verses of that, there in prison he's disillusioned. But John the baptizer was a man of the desert. He's beginning to doubt. He's lived all of his life with the wind in his face. John the baptizer's never lived in a house. And now all of a sudden he's in this, confined to the four narrow walls of an underground dungeon. And he's getting disillusioned there. Prison will do that to you. I'm not talking about just these 
prisons of stones and steel. Tennyson was right when he said, Iron bars do not a prison make, nor stone walls a cage. There are all kinds of prisons of discouragement and disillusionment and rejection. And here was this man who was made for the desert. Now he's confined. Barclay tells about in Carlisle Castle there was this little cell and they put the barter chieftain in this little cell. He'd never been confined. And high up at the, almost to the top of the, of the room was a little slit, a little window, too high up there for, you, for him to stand and look out. And so he'd, he'd leap and catch that, the, 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 the ledge of that little window with his hands and pull himself up so he could see, confining that little cell for years. When he finally died, they found two little indentures in that ledge, where every, worn there by his fingers, his hands, where every day he peeked out that slit to those green fields across which he would never ride. Prisons, prisons do strange things to you, regardless of what those prisons are. They make you think, I've done right and I've been done wrong, is it worth it? Now, when you're mistreated, what should you do? When you do right and you've been done wrong, what should you do? How, how, in other words, how can I make the most of prison experiences? Maybe you've got an unhappy marriage. Maybe you're not happy in your home life. You've got a couple of lousy parents. So did I when I was 15. I mean, the worst parents. Give anything if I'd have had my friend's parents, you know, when I was 15. Realized, of course, looking back, everything was different than I thought. Maybe you got a lousy boss and a terrible job. How to make the most of prison experiences? Number one, consider the source. When you're mistreated, consider the source. Somebody makes fun of you, just consider the source. My granddaddy used to say, when a donkey kicks you, just consider the source. Oh, he used another word, which I shall not use from this pulpit. It also would be good in considering the source, if in considering the source, you understand that what they did was because they thought they were doing right. Isn't that an amazing thing that when Jesus said, there will be a time when people do you wrong, they think they're doing right and doing it. Consider the source. Secondly, focus on the truth. It's interesting to me that the first part of the armor, when the Lord tells us to be you know, fully armed, take up the full armor of God, is the belt of truth. Because everything else hinges on that. Everything else hangs on that, truth. As opposed to reality, truth. As opposed to unreality, reality as opposed to unreality. Truth as opposed to emotion. Truth will set you free mentally. The truth is, I did what was right. And I did it for the right motive. That'll set you free. The truth is that I was mistreated, but God warned me, told me that I would be. I mean, it's nothing that I shouldn't 
be surprised about. Third, watch your attitude. There's some attitudes that creep in called self-pity and blame and panic. And it won't be long until you'll be sending an emissary to the Lord and you'll be saying, if, it's re- if, you're really, if you're really the Lord, if you're really who you say you are, speak up. I mean, if, you really, if this is really true, then answer my prayer occasionally. Let me know something for sure. Panic, revenge, resentment, hatred of God. Be careful about those feelings. Fourth, stay in touch with an objective spiritual-minded companion. The longer I live in the Christian life, the more I'm aware that one of the keys to living the Christian life, as young people especially, is to have a Christian spiritually-minded companion. I've tried to analyze this junior class. Some real weirdos, it's been kind of difficult analyze this. I've been, trying to, I've been trying to analyze how it is that this is such a unique bunch of young men and women. I think I know the answer in part. Not only is it because they have wonderful homes from which they've come, but they've stayed together. You notice that? They've stuck together and in that companionship they have found strength. There's this spiritually minded companionship. And while we're getting personal, I, I, I look back, you know, and, and, and I was thinking about Tracy and Laura. Tracy graduating, and, and all through life they have just stayed the constant and, 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 and Christian and Christ-like and godly. You, and they, you, you know, it's because they had each other. To, you, you know, you, you, is, that, is that apparent to you as it is to me? Keep close contact with an objectively, spiritually-minded companion. Two are better than one. And survival in the Christian life depends on being able to have that spiritual companion. Finds you somebody that has the same values and that will not bend. And five, seize the setback as an opportunity for growth rather than a detour to the flat lands of doubt. Now I want to end with a a passage of Scripture and a statement I want to read. So take heart, it's almost over. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. By the way, it's a marvelous book to read if, you've, if, you're, having, if you're going through trials. Let me read again. In this... That is, you're protected by the power of God through faith. Verse 5, in this you greatly rejoice that you're protected by the power of God through faith. Even though now for a little while, it's just temporary, 
If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by, by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this testing of your faith results in the praise and the honor and the glory to Jesus Christ. If you ever get a chance to read this book, you need to read it. It's The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. Some, have you, how many of you read that book? Good. This statement, I want to read it. It's kind of long, so tune me in here. Life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them or solve them? Do we want to teach our children to solve them? What makes life difficult is the process of confronting and solving problems is a painful one. Problems, depending on their nature, evoke in us frustration or grief or sadness or loneliness or guilt or regret or anger or fear or anxiety or anguish or despair. These are uncomfortable feelings, often very uncomfortable, often as painful as any kind of physical pain, sometimes equaling the very worst kind of physical pain. Indeed, it is because of the pain that events or conflicts engender in us that we call them problems. And since life poses an endless series of problems, life is always difficult and is full of pain as well as joy. Yet, it is in this whole process of meeting and solving problems that life has its meaning. Problems are the cutting edge that distinguishes between success and failure. Problems call forth our courage and our wisdom. Indeed, they create our courage and our wisdom. It is only because of problems that we grow mentally and spiritually. When we desire to encourage the growth of the human spirit, we challenge and we encourage the human capacity to solve problems. Just as in, the, in school, we deliberately set problems for our children to solve. It is through the pain of confronting and resolving problems that we learn. As Benjamin Franklin said, those things that hurt, instruct. It is for this reason that wise people learn not to dread, but actually to welcome problems the pain of problems, end of quote. And so in prison, John the baptizer 
considered the source, and he focused on the truth, and he got in control of his attitude, and he stayed in touch with his disciples, and he seized the setback as an opportunity for growth, and he died there victorious because he had determined that he'd rather die right than to live wrong. Let's pray together. Father, help us in all that we do and say and instruct and teach to be realistic. Not try to gloss over life, the real life, the real stuff. But help us in the confrontation of the real experiences of life to understand that we're not overloaded and underpowered. There is so much to be and become and do. And help us to understand that the only things we take out of this life are the things that we really are. Everything else is left behind. And as we experience the prisons of human existence, we become the mature, strong, the growing believer whose faith has been tested, refined, purified in the furnace. Pray for these young men and women who sit before me tonight. This congregation of people who encounter today and will encounter tomorrow all kinds of trials. That indeed, we might be different people than the world. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. I'd like to give an invitation tonight. You understand the invitations. We extend here on Sundays an invitation to receive Christ, to rededicate your life, to come back to God, to recommit yourself to His call and will, or perhaps to join the church as some did this morning. We're not saying stay longer than God would lead us to stay. So you come if you're coming on the first word as we stand to sing.